looking for dads that might have young kids with them here. Um, if you got your kids here, good respect to you guys. I know that can be a challenge. I've, I saw some of the kids, clothes were coordinated, hair was brushed. So good job, guys. Um, yeah, like I said, Mallory, my wife's down there with them as well, having a great time, which also explains why I'm dressed like this. And the reason I bring that up is I walk down from the, my, my bedroom, I come down to the kitchen, and there's my daughter having breakfast, and she looks at me and goes, what are you doing? I said, what are you talking about? What am I doing? She goes, why are you trying to dress like a hip millennial pastor? I said, I, I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm, number one, I'm not a millennial. I'm, I'm Gen X. And what's wrong with being a hip Gen X pastor? And she's eating toast. She goes, yeah, I don't think that's a thing. You don't got that. <laughs> she goes, if, if Brody were wearing fancy clothes, he'd look like you. So why are you trying to be a hip millennial pastor? So Brody, you're like the, the, the standard bearer of hip millennial pastor type people. Where are you at, Brody? There you go. So there we go. We look alike maybe. I don't know. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 12 as we work our way through this amazing book. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8 this morning. But actually in the reading, I'm going to back it up to verse 1 and 2 because that is such a foundational couple verses. Really not only for the rest of the book of Rome, or chapter Romans, but really the entire book. Now if you need to use a Bible, if you need to borrow one, feel free, grab the Pew Bible. You'll find it on page 891. So if you need a Bible, and if you don't happen to have a Bible, just take the one in the Pew home with you. We'd love to have you have a Bible. So that's going to be on page 891, Romans chapter 12. All right, let me open up to it myself. And would you stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 12, I'm going to take it from verse 1. I appeal to you, Paul writes, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Since we've come out of the pandemic, there's been a surge of studies on people's mental health and its impact upon society. And there's, there's no part of our society that isn't being affected by this important topic. From workout trends and products like the explosive growth of the Peloton machines to the rush to adopt dogs from rescue shelters, we're doing everything we can, it seems, to shore up our mental health, our mental well-being. And while that's a good thing, the larger picture of what's going on in our society doesn't paint such a rosy picture. There are a lot of studies coming out that are showing massive spikes in loneliness across the board. So depending upon what study you look at, that number can be as low as 30%, 3 in 10 American adults experiencing significant bouts of loneliness, as high as 58%, almost 6 out of 10 of American adults. 
People are marrying later and later in life. Divorce is more the norm rather than the exception. And it's almost an understood thing that most marriages might end up in divorce. Singleness as a, an adult, mature adult phenomena is on the rise. And entire nations are experiencing population decline. You may have heard about these things in the news. Right now, the East is leading the way. Japan, China, and South Korea are very much on the forefront. But Europe itself is no longer at its what they call reproduction rate. And so populations are beginning to decline. And that's going to have a massive effect on the economies as well. Because of our technology, we are increasingly connected to each other, but oddly more alone than ever. All the new virtual intimacies are only serving to create actual, real isolation. And virtual church and online services are not helping matters much either. Uh, literally, virtual church is an oxymoron. The, the Greek word that we get translated church, ekklesia, literally means in the original language, the gathered ones, the assembly. And so you can't be part of the assembly, the gathered ones, sitting by yourself watching a computer screen or a television at home. It's an oxymoron. And so promoting ideas of community that actually don't give community is never a good idea. Now, that being said, I get it, right? Human connections, as important and necessary as they are, it's really hard. And for some of us, it's harder than others, especially if you're an introvert, right? Uh, dogs and bo bo uh, books and motorcycles are easier to love than people sometimes, right? There's a reason, statistically speaking, millennials have more pets than they do children, right? And now you might kind of chuckle at that because on the one hand, we all kind of understand that. Connecting with people, relationships, they're hard to, to get into, they're hard to maintain. Uh, but we also know that human flourishing doesn't happen when you're alone in the woods, our deepest sources of joy and connection come from the communities we have. But community takes more than just being around people. Fighting loneliness requires more than just being surrounded by people. Sometimes that can accentuate your loneliness even more. Is that when you're with people, but there's no sense of connection or communing. It, it takes a certain posture of the human heart. It takes a commitment to how to interact with others. Uh, famous Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung says this, Loneliness does not come from having no people around you, but from being unable to communicate the things that seem important to you. It's very wise, very insightful. Loneliness is not the result of not having people around. It's not being able to connect. And as I said, sometimes being surrounded by people that you are unable to connect with or commune over things that matter can just heighten the experience that you feel alone. So in reality, it's not so much the external situation that has to change as it is an internal posture, a commitment of how you're going to move through life with the other people around you that needs to change. So the million-dollar question then becomes, well, how do we do that well? And I think that's exactly what Paul leads with in this opening section of Romans chapter 12, uh, looking at verses 3 through 8 this morning. As Jesus uh, taught you so well last week, Romans 12 is kind of the hinge point of the book of Romans in one particular way. And that is, it hinges from the massive theological realities of the gospel into a very practical Christian living in so many ways. Now, that's not to say that theology isn't practical for Christian living at all. It's just that now that becomes the strong emphasis of Paul. And it began last week in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, 
with the vertical relationship with how we relate to God as living sacrifices. It continues this morning and next week about how do we relate to ourselves and in the others around us. And then in chapter 13, the emphasis shifts to how do we then relate, what kind of relationship do we have with the states and institutions that God's put around humanity. And then in chapter 14, what kind of relationship do we have with those Paul calls the weak and the strong amongst us. And finally, it concludes with this parade of relationships in chapter 16 that Paul had filled his life with that brought him so much joy and fulfillment in his life and ministry. And so really, from here on out, Romans is all about the various relationships we're going to have in life and how do we make sense of them, how do we interact with them, how do we cultivate them well. So let me give you the essence of these six verses right here. This is kind of like the, 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 the nub or the engine of what I'm trying to communicate. Humility is the key to new covenant relationships because our unity, diversity, and community are impossible without it. Now, if, if you can get that, that's like great. You get the A grade, A plus, because that's the point of what Paul is actually trying to communicate. One step down from that is this way of saying, they're saying the same thing. It's just I'm kind of focusing it, streamlining it. Humility is the foundation to relational or spiritual strength and service, right? And then, so that's like B, if you can get that. And then the, the, the C average, at the very least I hope you get, is humility is the key to community. That's in essence what Paul is trying to communicate in these six verses. Any one of those will do. One of the key truths of the book of Romans is that God's glory, and this is good, God's glory includes human flourishing. And human flourishing entails community, rich, deep community. And, and that shouldn't come as any surprise because that is a reflection of the very character of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, abiding in wonderful, loving community from all eternity past to eternity future. So it's not surprising that his glory would include in his image bearers, they experience the same kind of loving, wonderful sense of fellowship and community because that's what exists in the very triunity of God himself. And so in God being glorified, we find ourselves flourishing. And in that flourishing, human, human community is a vital part of it. So then that means this morning we need to ask and answer two important questions. Number one, what is humility? And number two, how do we grow in humility? What is humility and, and how do we grow in humility? And to be honest with you, uh, this morning I was preaching first hour, I kind of thought maybe a, a third point should be on the very front end, the value of humility. Uh, value of humility is what I mean. So, but anyway, it is what it is. So what is humility or what is the value or the importance of humility? First and foremost, as we look at the text, humility is a state of mind. It is an orientation of one's character. I called it earlier a posture of your heart. It is, it is a way you think about moving through your world. Humility is not an, an, um, a feeling. It is not an emotion that you might experience or wait to experience. It is a state of mind that you have, a posture of the heart, if I can kind of mix my metaphors there. The renewed mind that Jesus talked about last week, which was like I said, verse 1 and 2 of this chapter is so foundational, that, that Paul talks about, that the, the renewing of the mind begins with a new and realistic assessment of ourselves, our abilities, and the relationships around us. It's no coincidence that immediately as Paul talks about renewing your mind so that you can discern the perfect will of God, the next line talks about humility because that's where it begins. And the fact that this is true 
Notice in verse 3, four times Paul references uh, thinking or thinking language. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So four times in one verse, he's talking about a state of thinking, a state of mind that we are to have. To the Philippians, Paul wrote in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So it is a state of mind. And if humility is the key to community, friends, we're already going in a very um, countercultural direction, aren't we? Paul says to think of others, not just yourself, to have this sober assessment of who you are. And the reason that's so countercultural is because we are living in an age, in a time where we are being bombarded with the dangers of low self esteem, of how important it is for you to stop anyone who's trying to prevent you from becoming your real, authentic self. But the real danger, Paul says, is exactly that, thinking more about ourselves than the communities we find ourselves a part of. Remember years ago, I was discipling a young man in the Midwest, and I found out after first hour, he had said something about humility that I thought was great, and somebody said they think it came from C.S. Lewis, but he said, this young man I was discipling when we were talking about this in Ephesians 4, humility is not thinking less of myself, it's just thinking of myself less. I thought that was a really good way of thinking about it practically. It's not thinking less of myself. It's just thinking of myself less. Yeah. You see, Paul anticipates that people will struggle with self-centeredness and pride, not humility. I think we can illustrate this. Let me get a show of hands. How many of you, one of your Christian struggles is you have to stop trying to be so humble because you're too humble? Raise your hand. <laughs> A couple of you, right? And then you just lost it, right? That's the problem with humility. Right? But you get what I'm saying that. In, in, in 25 years of counseling, I have never had a husband or a wife fight because one of the, the other spouse was just too humble and thought of the other person's interests more than their own. I've never seen a relationship go sideways because someone was thinking too much of serving the other individual. As a matter of fact, friends... If you know of any relational conflict, if you see any relational conflict, you will find lack of humility. Somewhere in that situation where there's conflict, you're going to find lack of humility. That's just the reality. That's what Paul is saying here. And to, to emphasize that this isn't just Paul's opinion, right, that this isn't just good advice, notice how he loads on it his apostolic credentials. Did you see that right at the beginning of verse 3? For by the grace given to me, what's he referring to? The grace of his apostleship. That was a grace, a charisma, a gift from God. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but have sober judgment. Paul is making the point. This isn't just good relational advice. This is divine wisdom that he's giving to us. And it's not just here to the Romans. He said the same thing to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, with all humility... Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. 
Friends, this is why in our church covenant together, the first promise we make to one another is this very same thing. We will work and pray to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility is one of those bonds that maintain the peace in our relationships together. We are to work at humility. Friends, let me ask you this. What are you doing actively to work on humility? How are you actively trying to work on humility? Because humility is the foundation to community, whether it's talking about a church context, like Paul is referring to here, or your family, or the people you work with. It's always going to be the same, that humility is the key to community. Now, I know I didn't exactly define it yet, right? So I've been talking about the value of humility. What exactly is it? Notice in your, in your Bibles in verse 3, the English Standard Version calls it sober judgment. If you have a New American Standard, it's very similar. They call it sound judgment. I like the New Living Translation. It says an honest evaluation of yourself. I really like that. An honest evaluation of yourself. Humility is a realistic assessment of who you are with all of your strengths, right, and all of your weaknesses. Not too proud of your strengths, not too insecure of your weaknesses. Humility is the ability to be comfortable enough in yourself to accept praise without becoming puffed up. Humility is the ability to be comfortable enough in yourself to accept criticism without becoming deflated. You see why humility is so important for community, don't you? How important this is to kind of keep us as centered. If we're so impressed by ourselves, it's likely we will not think much of others. In the same way, if we're so depressed by ourselves, it's likely we won't think of others much. Right? That, so this is the balance. It saves us from one ditch or the other. See, when we have humility... You see strengths and weaknesses and differences for what they are, which is really Paul's point in verses 4 through 6. This unique, beautiful, and diverse way God has brought together the body of Christ. Now, a great example of someone who understands humility, people wouldn't think of the, this word defining this individual, of understanding and accepting your strengths and weaknesses was Winston Churchill. He's one of my heroes from history. Listen to what uh, was written about him in his latest biography. Once he was asked, Churchill, does it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? It's quite flattering, replied Churchill. But whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, the audience would be twice as large. <laughs> I love it. He understood that he had certain ability to speak and communicate to a crowd, to move a nation to action. But he also recognized that there were many people who couldn't stand him for that. And he didn't shrink from it, and he didn't let it define him. See, humility recognizes and accepts and allows for all of your strengths and all of your weaknesses, and at the same time, to not ultimately be defined by either set. That makes sense? Because sometimes, especially in our self-esteem society, we're always told, just, you know, you you're, you're, you're have high esteem, high value of yourself, and accept all your strengths. Well, that can lead to arrogance. 
Or on the other hand, people just are defined by their weaknesses, and, and they become like Eeyore. You know, you guys remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? I can never do anything right. Woe is me, right? And so either you're arrogant or you're an Eeyore. And neither one of those are helpful, nor are any one of those actually humble. Humility is the ability to say, look, this is what, I'm a mixed bag. I'm a mixed bag. And so what happens is when you have this kind of humility, you accept your strengths and your weaknesses. And keep in mind, Paul's talking about a church kind of context, a, a community context. When you run into someone who might be abrasive or maybe somewhat critical of you, you don't tend to avoid that person because you're comfortable in yourself when they have some things to say about you. And even more so, you're even able to accept them because you understand God's working in their weaknesses. Or if you meet somebody who is um, more capable than you, you don't become intimidated by them just because they have these various abilities. You recognize that abilities don't mean better, it just means different. And when you understand Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, you recognize different is by God's design. And those differences are intended to draw us together in interdependent relationships. Friends, without this grounding of humility, you will always, and this is exhausting, you will always play the comparison game. Because you'll always be wondering how you stack up to others because you're not comfortable in yourself. And practically what happens if that's what you're doing is that one of two things is going to happen. It'll either lead you to pride or fear. Pride, because when we compare ourselves to others, we tend to take our strengths and compare them with their weaknesses, and we always come out on top, and we're full of pride. Or we take our weaknesses and compare them to their strengths, and we always come out short and fearful that we'll never match up. And so we're full of pride or we're full of fear. Neither one of those are gospel orientations. And so when you play the comparison game, nobody wins. And that's why the need for real, genuine humility is so important to community because then you're not in competition with everyone. You're complementing everyone, and it works together. So we have to ask, then, how do we get to the point where I'm actually comfortable with myself? How do I have this deep, how do I learn this deep, abiding sense of humility? One writer put it this way. The way, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your full height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. <laughs> I like that. He's not downplaying that you actually have some greatness. But he's saying what you need to do is not, not be Eeyore, but stand at the fullness of what you are by something that actually shows you how small your greatness actually is. So the question is, what is that higher nature that we are to stand against, to, to measure ourselves against if it's not each other? And Paul tells us what that is. So here's the preview. It's the gospel and God's grace towards us in our differences as we work in the body of Christ. And that's the answer to our second question then. How does one grow in humility? Notice immediately after Paul says that we need to have sober judgment regarding ourselves, he offers two ways we can do that in verses 3 and 4. And just so you know how the passage is structured, really the, the point Paul's getting at is found in verse 3 and 4, and 4 through 8 is just kind of an unpacking of that. Verse 3, we're to be able to, to stand to, to get a sense of who we actually are according to the measure of faith that God has assigned in verse 4 as persons with different um, 
opportunities and roles in the larger body of Christ, verses 4 through 8. Now, I was having this wonderful conversation with a brother from our church uh, in the green room before service. Verse 3 is, is a tough one to uh, interpret, and that's because I think the most common reading of it is not correct. Now, there are people who disagree with me, and there are people who agree with me, but I think most people read this verse, and they thought the expression measure of faith means amount of faith. That is, what Paul is saying is that some people, um, we, we develop our opinion of ourselves, it depends upon the amount of faith we have. God's given some more, God gives some less. So if you have the faith to accept who you are, you're a little bit more comfortable in your skin. If not, then maybe you're a little bit insecure. But, and I said, probably the reason, and, and I admit, that's an easy way to read the passage, but the problem I have is that's totally contrary to the overall point that Paul is trying to communicate. In other words, so for example, uh, I also have some linguistic reason to believe this. The word we translate measure comes from the Greek metron. We get the Greek word or the English word meter. And it stands for a standard of measurement. It doesn't mean amount. It's a standard of measurement. If we were to have an objective, sober understanding of ourselves, we need an equally objective standard, something to measure ourselves with that's not dependent on subjective feelings about how you might feel about yourself or the amount of faith you think you have or don't have. There's got to be something that's solid that we compare ourselves with. And I think that standard, that measure of faith, is the work of Christ. Whereas in, in the work of Christ, it's in, that's where we see God's both his judgment and his mercy being revealed. And it's only there that we can actually truly measure ourselves soberly and correctly for who we actually are, or at least our value. And this also means, by the way, that we all have the same measure of them, the same standard of faith. It's not different for everyone in this room. Which is, by the way, how I think the book of Romans actually is structured. When you think about what, the way Romans is structured, chapters 1 through 18, verses 3 through 20, makes the point clearly that we are all sinners saved by Christ. And, and Romans is structured this, structured this way. In those two chapters, Paul makes it clear, we are sinners. We have rejected the worship of God for the worship of ourselves. We've made too much or too, too little of God and too much of ourselves. And as John Flavel says, the Puritan, they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Romans 1 through 3 makes that very clear. We're sinners. But we're also sinners who are saved. And Romans 3.21 to Romans 5.21 makes that point abundantly clear. That God made a way for us at great cost to himself. He bridged the gap that divided humanity and divinity. And he made a way for us to be made new again. So we're sinners, Romans 1 through 3, that have been saved, Romans 3 through 5. And the point being is we couldn't possibly be loved anymore or valued in the gaze of the only one whose opinion truly matters. And we could never think so lowly of ourselves. So if you only take the first part of Romans, you will feel like you're just nothing, right? But if you only take the second part of Romans, you'll feel like you're all that in a bag of chips. You need to have both those so you're not either arrogant. I'm losing track of where my metaphors are. So you're not either arrogant or the Eeyore. That you recognize that you are a sinner, but you are saved. Those two together. So the first measure that we gauge ourselves by is the gospel we believe. The second measure of how we are thinking about ourselves is found in verses 4 through 8. 
individuals with different opportunities to serve the body of Christ with this gospel message. So we're not clones, right? So in one sense, I know this is somewhat conceptual, so let me unpack it some more. We are all the same in that we all have the same standing because of the gospel, but we're also very different and varied in our opportunities to minister the gospel. So I think there's a passage in Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 2. I think Paul says it nicely here. It's a passage you're familiar with. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace, notice it's grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what Paul's talking about in Ephesians is, hey, look, we've been saved. But we also have works to do. And as we go into Romans, Paul's making the same case. We all have the same measure of faith. It is the gospel that tells us who we are, but we have a different application of that gospel dependent upon your various situations. In other words, God's grace is not simply seen in him giving his righteousness to you. God's grace is seen in you uh, ministering that, that, that the righteousness he gave to you, ministering to others. So grace is given in both ways both in his giving us his righteousness and us having opportunities to minister out of that righteousness. So let me make it clear. How do we grow in humility? It comes down to our identity in Christ, understanding our identity in Christ, and number one, or number two, our participation in the body of Christ. How do we grow in humility? We understand our identity in Christ. So wicked and full of our sin, Romans 1 through 3, that it took God the Son himself to redeem us. But so loved and cherished, Romans 3 through 5, that God would willingly send his son to do that very thing. Friends, the gospel, remembering our identity in Christ, the gospel destroys any of the arrogance or the foolish or the pride because the cross exposes our weaknesses, our pettiness, our sins, our shortcomings. But at the same time, the gospel also reveals, the cross also reveals how cherished, loved, and valued we are. This is why the gospel has been the universal symbol of Christianity. It alone holds those two, might seem totally disparate realities, without which, without which we'd either be arrogant or eors. We'd be full of pride or full of fear. The gospel takes care of that and abolishes both and creates a humility. Right? Which means, friends, your limitations or your weaknesses, whatever you want to call them, your personality quirks, the things that you're deficient on, the things that you try to hide from other people, right? You all individually know what I'm talking about. I don't know what they are, but you hide from people. That's what it is to be human. Look at Genesis 3. What's the first thing Adam and Eve did? They hid. We do the same thing. What I'm trying to get at is when we understand the gospel and what it means, those very things that we're ashamed of, that we're hiding, we start looking at them differently that as, a, as a means by which God will display his grace to you in just the grace of sanctification, man, overcoming those things. Or God will use another brother and sister in Christ in the body in relationship with you to make up for your lack. In the same way, he may use you to make up for the lack of another. 
And so we're not trying to hide or, or be arrogant and cover up or just down in the dumps all the time. We recognize we're a mixed bag. Strengths and weaknesses, but as we see here, what Paul's talking about, those become complementary in the body of Christ. Where one is strong, another is weak. Where one is weak, another is strong. And together we grow in Christ. See, this is the, what brings us together, and it's humility is the glue. And this is Paul's point. Whenever he talks about the body metaphor that he's using here in verse 4 and 6, you see that in, in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12. Every time he talks about it, if those three times in the New Testament, humility, unity, diversity, and community are the reoccurring themes. Because gospel-fueled humility is the glue, friends, that holds together the, the diversity that is our humanness and the unity of Christian truth and creates this, this community through the church. But it can only happen with this kind of humility. And, and, and we see this, look at verses 4 and 5. Paul, Paul is kind of dancing around between this unity diversity language that, that sometimes we just miss it. In verse 4 and 5, notice the one and many concept. One body, many members, and then at the end of verse 5, though many, we are one body. So he's going back and forth to them. And in the same way, just even when you look at our society, we're struggling with the same kind of thing. So more conservative uh, society culture, they focus on the unity. We have to be the same, and this is all how it's got to work out this way, right? More progressive parts of our society, they're all about the diversity. It's all, we got to celebrate all these ways that we are different. And never the two shall meet. Why? Because they don't have this fundamental gospel-fueled humility that can bridge the gap. That we are on the one hand... Uh, um, Sinners who are saved, deserving of judgment, but we don't get it. We get mercy. And that's why the church is the answer for a fractured society. Because we get unity, diversity can exist in community. But before that can happen, there's got to be a profound understanding of humility, which comes from your identity in Christ. Which comes from you participating in a body of people that are not like you. Right? We're never going to be the hipster millennial church, no matter how hard I dress like this, right? It's not going to happen. We're never going to be this church, the, that church. We don't want to be. We want to be a church that we reflect as many people of our society that's possible. Because that's what the church is supposed to do, reflect the, 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 the way the gospel takes the many into one. That's what the church is about. In verses 6 through 8, it's just Paul goes on to describe the various ways that we might have be different in our opportunities to minister to one another. And the point he's making, verse 6 through 8, is whatever opportunities you have, give yourself fully to them. Take full advantage of them. So if you have the opportunity to disciple a new believer, if you have the opportunity to, to serve as an usher, remember he's talking about a, a, court, a church context, if you have the opportunity to teach a Bible study or, or serve in kids ministry or leading a small group for our high school students, give yourself entirely to it is what Paul's getting at. And in that process, you're going to bump up to brothers and sisters who are different from you, but if you remember your identity in Christ, you will grow in humility. God's grace in the gospel creates a humility that we can all share together and be the same. This is the unity we have in Christ. But God's grace in the opportunities he gives to us is unique to every single one of us. This is the human context you have. 
right? Your unique personality, your temperament, your skill set, the opportunities you have will be different for everyone in this room. That's the diversity we share in Christ. And these two come together, forming this strange, unlikely, countercultural, beautiful community that testifies to the world that this one gospel can meet all the needs of humanity. And that's why it's really important we get this reality that you don't, we don't try to be a particular kind of church that defeats the point of community. How powerful it is, friends, when people see, I, I, one of my favorite things that I think we were getting at was at a Lord's Supper service, and this, she might have been 70, was walking up this aisle. She had the communion elements with her. And um, this 20-something-year-old guy gives her a high five. And I said, I think we're getting it. Because where in the world do you have a 70-year-old woman high-fiving a 20-year-old kid who's not her family member? You see, that's what the world needs to see. We may have nothing in common but Jesus Christ and the gospel, and that is enough to create the kind of community where we can connect and commune over things that really matter. And it all starts with this gospel-fueled humility. But it doesn't end there, right? It's, it's, it's not as if, okay, you get that, everything else is fine. What's going to happen next? We'll look at this next week, chapter, verses 9 through 21. Paul's going to unpack, kind of like in chapter 13 of Corinthians, love, right? And then all the ways that love looks like, Paul's going to do something similar with humility. All the different ways we see humility working itself out in our relationships to one another. But the first thing Paul wanted to get out of the gate was the relationship you have towards yourself. Are you thinking clearly about who you are, your strengths and weaknesses? And then are you moving towards others in that kind of gospel-fueled, comfortable humility? Right? Hope you're here next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. It is, it is rich and it feeds us. And there's so much in it, Lord. But Father, we want to walk away with the reality that, that humility is key to these new covenant relationships that, that you've given to us in the church. Father, we repent of being, uh, of, of any kind of consumer mindset when it comes to your people. Help us understand a covenant mindset that we are a people of promise because we, as Peter says, are to proclaim to the world your excellencies. And in order for that to happen, Lord, because you have gathered a motley crew here, we have to have a gospel-fueled humility that's based on the objective reality that we are sinners saved by Christ. Father, no more profound truth could there be. We pray, Lord, that that reality weaves itself into our community in 10,000 different ways. Father, thank you that that I hear that constantly from people who are visiting, from people who are new, that this church loves well. We do not take that for granted. We ask, Lord, you make that even more and more true, that we would learn to love well, not just one another, not just those who are here, but those who are yet to come, those who are, even those that are unlovable in the world. Father, we want the gospel to be proclaimed. We want the name of Christ to be made great. And we know that is your plan for the church. And so we pray you make it a reality. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.